Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And when I was growing up, we had a couple of computers at my house. One was an Apple IIe, that was our, our first real personal computer, and the other, which came later, was an IBM compatible, and uh, at that point, I think I was almost a teenager or maybe a, a young teenager when we got the IBM compatible. I don't remember exactly when my dad got our first modem or whether it was on the Apple IIe or on the 286 IBM compatible or one of the later ones because we got a 386 from there. But one thing I do remember really well was a particular sound. Any of you guys out there around my age or so will remember that noise too. Now, some of you younger folks might have heard it before, and a few of you might still use one. I mean, they're not obsolete, but they are the exception rather than the rule. And to the rest of you, that probably sounds entirely foreign. And it is the sound of a dial-up modem making a connection. So in today's episode, I'm going to talk about modems, specifically dial-up ones. Before I launch into my trademarked history section, let's talk about what a modem actually does. A modem's purpose is to facilitate communication between computers. And the word modem is a portmanteau, which means I get to revel in my background in English lit. So a portmanteau is a word that combines both the meaning and the sounds of two or more other words. And typically we do this to convey a particular concept or meaning. So for example, brunch, something I miss dearly during this time of isolation, is a portmanteau. It combines the sounds from the words breakfast and lunch, and it also combines the meaning of those two words. Brunch is a meal that occurs later than breakfast, but earlier than lunch, and typically the menu for brunch includes foods that you might encounter at either of those other meals. So, what words and ideas combine to form the word modem? Well, that would be modulation and demodulation. I'll explain that a little bit later in this episode, but first let's dive into some history. To understand the genesis of modems for computers, it actually helps for us to go even further back to talk about the telegraph, which I know sounds crazy, but hear me out. Way back in the mid-19th century, so the mid-1800s, inventors, including the famous Samuel Morse, were developing a method of communication that depended upon sending electric signals over wires. And it was ingenious in its simplicity. So on one end, you've got a switch. If you close the switch, you let current pass through a circuit into a wire. If you open a switch, you cut off that path. The current cannot flow through. Now, this particular switch was spring-loaded. If you pushed down on a little button, you closed the switch. If you let off pressure, 
if you took your hand away, it would spring back into the open position. So it was only closed if you held it closed. On the opposite side of that wire was the receiver. And the receiver had an electromagnet in it. So when current flowed to the electromagnet, it would generate a magnetic field. That's how electromagnets work, right? The current flows through, it generates a magnetic field. This magnetic field would then pull down a ferromagnetic lever. And so if you hold down the switch on the sending end, the lever on the receiving end would stay down because the electromagnetic force would continue to pull on it. If you let go of the switch, the lever on the opposite side would pop back up once that electromagnetic attraction stopped. Uh, you could also have it just be some sort of buzzer or alarm. So you hold down the switch and it makes an electromagnet sound a bell or a buzzer. Now, that by itself is not t terribly useful. But one thing you could do is establish a pattern and determine what meaning there is in the pattern. So, for example, if you were to hold down the switch for a little bit, that might be a dash. If you just tapped the switch, you would get a dot. And then by establishing what dots and dashes mean, you could build out a code. That's exactly what Morse did. He developed his eponymous code, the Morse code, to encode characters into collections of dots and dashes. You could take a message written in a language like English. You convert every letter in that message into its respective dots and dashes. You send it off by telegraph by tapping this message out on the sending end. And an operator on the receiving end would listen to those taps, knowing whether it's a dot or a dash, they would take down the message and decode it back into its original language. You know, if they were really good, they could do it letter by letter. Otherwise, they were actually writing down dots and dashes. A little bit later, you had engineers who created a version where the receiving end had a lever where it ended with a little wheel that was coated in ink. And there was paper tape that would constantly move at a speed beneath the lever. So when the sender pressed the sending key down, the receiving key would come down and that wheel would make contact with the paper. And then based upon the length of the switch press, you would get a physical dot or a dash. You would actually get a printed version of the coded message, which you could then decode. Then thus you would save the transcription step where someone would have to take down the dots and dashes by hand. Now, trust me, this is all going to lead into modems, but we do have a couple of other stops we have to make first. There was a lot of work in the field of teleprinters in the 19th century, including stuff like stock tickers that would take in an electric signal and then print out results based on that. But we're going to jump over all of that for right now to get to the early 20th century. In 1902, an electrical engineer named Frank Pern was experimenting with a method to create a printing telegraph system that would let people send and receive text messages, essentially, using typewriter-like devices that would connect to each other via wires. You could have dedicated wires between two of these things, or you could have them tap into some other wired system. He encountered some challenges along the way, and after a few years of frustration, Pern decided he's going to peace out of this whole endeavor. But then his work was carried on by another engineer named Charles Crum. 
The goal was, again, to make an automated system that could receive incoming messages and print them in alphanumeric characters on paper. So instead of getting those dots and dashes, you would get the original message as it was intended. It was skipping the whole encoding-decoding step. You wouldn't have to put a message into Morse code and then decode it. At least, it was skipping it as far as the human operators were concerned. It was taking all of those sort of intermediate steps required by traditional telegraphy and automating them. But how? Well, it comes back to the idea of using electric pulses to indicate a letter. So it really comes back to that closed and open switch description. The engineers coded each character as a series of five potential electric pulse states. And the states were either on, meaning current was flowing through the circuit, at that instant, or off, meaning no current was flowing, and they represented each letter as a sequence of either on or off, and uh, that sequence would include five pulses. They referred to the on current state as marking, and the off current state as spacing. So the letter D, for example, would code into mark, space, space, mark, space, meaning the current would be on off, off, on, off, as its sequence of five pulses. The receiving machine would interpret the incoming signals as letters. It would say, all right, we're looking at this span of time, and we see that the current is on, off, off, on, off. That's the letter D. The code itself dated all the way back in the 1870s. It was invented by Emile Baudot. Baudot, that's B-A-U-D-O-T, made numerous contributions to the field, including a method of multiplexing, that is, being able to send multiple messages simultaneously through a careful system of clockwork switches so that the correct information would go to the correct teleprinter. His work was important enough that we take his name, Baudot, and we created the unit for data transmission with modems, the BAUD, B-A-U-D. More on that in just a moment. But this approach required one other very important component. The sending and receiving machines had to be, quote, in step, meaning they had to be synchronized with each other. If they weren't, then the receiving machine might start interpreting signals out of step, out of sync with the sending machine, and thus print the wrong letters. Because remember, every character coded into a signal of five pulses. If the receiving machine is off by even one pulse, it's going to misinterpret what's being sent to it. So if you were sending a message that was five letters long, those five letters would be represented by 25 short pulses, five pulses each. And the first letter would be pulses 1 through 5, the second letter would be pulses 6 through 10, and so on. But let's say the receiving machine only starts to pick up at pulse 3. It misses the first two pulses. It thinks pulse 3 is actually pulse 1, which means it's going to use the pulses 3 through 7 to be the first letter. And the pulses 8 through 12 will be the second letter, and so on, with the final letter having two spaces at the end because no more signal is being sent. While the engineers were able to create a way to send and receive signals, it was this synchronization step that would be a really big challenge. They had to make sure that both machines knew, quote-unquote, 
when messages were coming through so that any errors that were detected would be known and it wouldn't just print gibberish. The solution turned out to be fairly elegant. Howard Crumb, the son of Charles Crumb, proposed that every code combination representing a letter would first be preceded by a start pulse and followed by a stop pulse. So every single letter would have a special pulse at the very beginning and the very end of that sequence of five to indicate this is the beginning of a letter, this is the end of a letter, ignore anything else. That way, the receiving machine would detect the true beginning and the true end of each combination and would more likely print the appropriate letter. It was a simple way to achieve full synchronization, though there was still no error correction at this point. Now, I'll have to dedicate a full episode to teletype and the advancements that made it possible because there's a whole lot more than that brief overview I just gave. But what does this all have to do with modems? Well, the process of encoding information and sending it through a signal is modulation. The process of receiving a signal and decoding that to get at the original information is demodulation. The same process is used in lots of other technologies, like radio. With radio signals, you take a carrier wave, that is, a radio wave with a consistent amplitude and a consistent frequency. It would just be a, a pure tone if you could hear it, if it were in the, the, the range of human hearing. So you get this pure radio wave. Now, you encode information by laying on another wave, by altering that wave in some way. You can change the amplitude. If you do it through those changes, you get what is amplitude modulation or AM radio. Or you could change the frequency, and you get frequency modulation or FM radio. The receiver on the other end follows the same process in reverse, It takes these waves in and then converts them back into the original information that was sent out, like, you know, your your pop radio station or whatever it is you're listening to. So really, this is all about creating a reversible process that lets you translate information into some other format and then back again on the other side. Now, in the 1920s, countries around the world slowly began building out telephone infrastructure. And there was now the opportunity to piggyback the infant teletype technology onto the phone infrastructure, except for the fact that phone companies were pretty dead set against it. Previously, these machines relied upon purpose-built wires, but that limits their use, right? You can only send messages to whichever machines are hardwired to your machine. That doesn't really give you a whole lot of options. What if you wanted to send it to somebody else whose machine wasn't directly connected to yours? You'd be stuck. The telephone network would allow for a lot more connectivity and had a lot more infrastructure that was already established. One early approach was to use non-switched telephone lines that were dedicated for these sorts of connections. These are called leased lines because these lines were meant only for that kind of process and would not be used for phone-to-phone conversations. But that was really expensive. It would be way more cost-effective and more useful to tap into the general telephone network, but there needed to be a couple of things for that to happen. One, you had to get it past the telephone company, which essentially in the United States was AT&T, and another was you had to find a way to modulate and demodulate the information so it could transmit over phone lines. There had to be a way to have two teletype machines establish a connection with one another and transmit and receive messages. 
At the time, the phone infrastructure in the United States was capable of carrying sound frequencies between 300 hertz and 3 kilohertz, also known as the voice band. Now, that's a pretty narrow range of frequencies, and you can think of frequencies as being related to pitch. Lower frequencies have a lower pitch, higher frequencies have a higher pitch, but the range of human hearing goes from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. So the voice band represents only a small slice of the full range of human hearing. It also means that any solution that would convert information into audio to transmit over phone lines would have to work within those limitations. Oh, and and here's another fun fact. We call this system the Plain Old Telephone Service, or POTS. Now, it's been updated since then, but it took a long time for that to happen. The United States was relying on POTS until the late 1980s. So it was a venerable technology by the time we finally got off of that. The teletype example is also important, not just because of modulation demodulation, but because it would help inform future engineers as they began to think about creating methods for computer systems to communicate with one another. Now, keep in mind that the early computer systems were all independent. They were mainframe systems that performed like an isolated island. You needed physical access to the machines or to dumb terminals that were connected to those machines in order to make any use of them. Communication with other computers wasn't really a possibility for numerous reasons. One was that different computers effectively spoke different languages. So a program written for one type of computer would not work on another. Just as a program written for a Mac computer won't run natively on a Windows-based machine. But another reason was just that there was no interface through which computers could send or receive information with one another. When we come back, we'll talk about how that would begin to change. But first, let's take a quick break. The development of modems, which weren't yet called modems, nor were they actually for computers just yet, would coincide with other trends in technology. Now, as we've learned in many episodes, the development of tech rarely follows a straight timeline where event A leads to event B, which leads to event C. Usually you're actually talking about multiple timelines of multiple technologies, and they ultimately either converge or at least cross paths. So it makes it complicated to tell the history. So while companies were working with teleprinters and teletype machines, as well as fax machines, which are somewhat related, other engineers were working on building out computer systems. World War II demonstrated how computer systems could be really important. In addition, the British developed radar technology, and it was obvious that being able to share radar information quickly across great distances, like coast-to-coast in the United States, would be advantageous. It would be really useful if a radar station in, say, Hawaii could send information back to the mainland in real time, that all that stuff could be monitored from a centralized location. Now, here's a big challenge. Ever since ENIAC hit the scene in the 1940s, computers have primarily fallen into the digital category. And digital information is different from the way information would transmit over phone lines. This leads us to talk about the difference between digital and analog. This is incredibly important for modems. So, we can think of the analog world as being the world of infinite variability. Everything is infinitely variable. You can change something like the brightness of a light. 
to an infinite degree of variability. You can always go a little less bright or maybe a little more bright or maybe half as bright as you just went the last time or half as dim. You can keep dividing that up into finer and finer adjustments with no limitations. If we took the number 10 and we cut it in half, we would have five. If we cut it in half again, we have 2.5. And we can keep cutting that in half forever. We can do that until we're just exhausted. So an analog recording is one that captures all the variations in a continuous signal. The digital world doesn't do that. A digital signal deals with discrete. It deals with the finite. A computer's capabilities will determine how many values any given signal can possess. The more powerful the computer, the more values it can handle. With enough values, the signal can seem to be almost like an analog one, because you've got enough information to describe that signal that upon casual glance or even careful examination, it looks the same as an analog signal. But this requires an awful lot of information to accomplish. One way to think about this is to consider a film photograph versus a digital photograph. Film is analog. Digital photography is, well, I mean, it's in the name, right? It's digital. So we've all heard about megapixels, right? Megapixels refer to a camera's ability to compose an image with a certain number of points of color or light. And it's all about a camera's resolution. If we had a camera with a really low resolution, I mean like ludicrously low, let's say eight by eight pixels, that would mean that the images would consist of eight blocks across and eight blocks tall, which means that the entire image would consist of just 64 blocks. That would be a really blocky image. It would be hard to even know what you were looking at unless it was a super simple shape. If you increase the resolution, that means you're decreasing the size of those pixels, you're decreasing the size of those blocks, and you're cramming more of them into there so that you can represent the image with more blocks, smaller blocks, creating a smoother, less blocky image. If you keep doing that, eventually you get to a resolution that's high enough that our human eyes can't really pick up on the pixel blocks at all. And to us, it just looks like a photograph on film. But again, it takes a lot of information to get to that point. Now, here's another challenge. How do you take the information a computer deals with, which is in digital binary format, these discrete packets of information, and then how do you send that out over a phone line, which carries an analog signal over physical copper wire? You have to create a way to translate the information from digital into analog. You have to modulate the computer data so it can pass over onto an analog transmission system. Then on the other end, on the receiving end, you need a device that can accept this incoming analog transmission and demodulate it, translating it back into binary information for the receiving computer to process. This is true for tons of different input and output scenarios, not just computers communicating across phone lines. Anytime you're using a computer system or you know, a digital system to record or analyze stuff out in the world, you're typically relying on a digital process to measure an analog phenomenon. Same is true if you were using, say, an analog joystick to play a video game. The analog controls, which might include a potentiometer that tells the device how far you're pushing the joystick in any given direction, 
That has to be converted into digital information for the computer to do anything useful with it. But let's get back to modems particularly. So the way a modem actually modulates data starts with a carrier wave, just like with the radio. Now, you could technically communicate in a very basic way just by either turning the wave on or off, right? You could say, all right, well, when it's on, that's a one, and when it's off, it's a zero, but that's not necessarily the best option. Another way is to alter the carrier wave in some fashion. You can tweak the amplitude or the frequency, just like with AM or FM radios. So modems take a basic carrier wave function and then alter it in some predetermined way to communicate digital data. The receiver on the other side gets this carrier wave with alterations, and it understands the whole process that was made to encode that information. So it just reverses it. It decodes the information and gets those delicious zeros and ones at the heart of everything. The speed at which a modem can transmit information is measured in bits per second. A bit, remember, is one unit of binary information, so it's either a zero or a one. And the unit we use to measure modem speed is the BAUD, B-A-U-D, named after Emile Baudot. BAUD refers to a symbol rate, and really that means how many times a transmission signal changes every second. More changes per second indicate more data carried by that signal per second. Now, typically, we think of this as a faster transmission speed because it reduces the time it takes to transmit any given file. But really, what it means is we're able to send more data at a time. One baud is the equivalent of one bit per second. Now, I wish I could tell you the name of the person or persons who first created computer modems, but that information is lost. And honestly, there was so much work in this area across so many different people in different organizations, all of whom made contributions, that I really cannot do that. They were all in different parts of the world. They're all working toward a similar goal. I can tell you that the first commercially available modem came out of AT&T. The company, through its R&D branch, Bell Labs, was working with the North American Air Defense Command, also known as NORAD, NORAD had a computer system called the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, or SAGE. This was a network that aimed to coordinate the numerous radar stations the U.S. commanded, and to use those sites to create a coordinated and unified image of U.S. airspace. So, if you've ever seen any of those military movies where people are looking at a whole bunch of different screens that make up the United States, that is a representation of what this was. Not necessarily an accurate one, but that's what they were trying to do. And I could do a full episode about Sage, but we're really interested in the modem part, as the modems are what allowed the computer systems in Sage to send data back and forth with each other. Bell Labs developed the 101 dataset modem in 1958 as sort of a part of this process. And some sources say the 101 was later introduced as a commercial product, Others disagree. They say a follow-up modem, the Bell 103, was the first commercial modem. I don't know who's right, but in any case, these commercial modems weren't for the average person anyway. When we're saying commercial modem, we don't mean that the average you know, human being would go out and buy one of these in a store. Computers were not for the average person. These were typically attached to mainframe-style systems that could communicate directly with other mainframe systems, typically of the same type. 
And this was just one piece of the puzzle that was necessary for computer networks. Another big piece of that puzzle was the telephone network itself. Okay, so back in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States, AT&T had a monopoly on the telephone system. They called all the shots as far as phones go. They owned essentially all the regional companies that provided telephone service in the United States. No matter who your phone company was, ultimately it was owned by AT&T if you were in the U.S., People didn't actually own their telephones. The phone company owned those phones. You would pay for phone service, and a phone would come with it, and technically you'd be leasing the phone. The phone company also had an iron grip on what could connect their network. Now, the phone company argued, and when I say phone company, I mean AT&T. AT&T argued that the reason for this was because they didn't want anyone to connect anything else to the network because it might deteriorate the performance of the entire network. So they said, we don't want to risk that. This is an important telecommunications infrastructure. So the company argued successfully that it should be allowed to uh, dictate what could and could not be connected to the, the phone network. The United States government agreed, and that was passed into law. Now, lots of engineers were developing technologies that could send signals over phone lines including stuff like modems. But AT&T wanted to restrict the network so that only products from AT&T itself would ever be allowed on their own phone infrastructure. Or, or even connect to the physical handsets. You wouldn't be allowed to make a peripheral for a phone handset because people, you know, individuals didn't own those telephones. AT&T did. This came to a head in 1956 when a case went to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It had already been decided in a lower court, got appealed, moved up to the Circuit of Appeals Court, and it was called Hush-A-Phone Corporation versus the United States. Now, the company hush a produced a pretty simple product. It was meant to attach to the speaker side of a phone handset. So this is the part you would hold up to your ear with an old telephone. And this was a little cup that fit on the end of that speaker. It would cup over your ear. It was meant to provide some extra privacy because it, it's like, you know, if you're whispering into someone's ears and you cup your hands around so that no one can hear you whisper, that's why it was called hushaphone. People wouldn't be able to suss out what was going on if they were trying to eavesdrop. It also would help you hear what was being said more clearly. AT&T claimed that the Communications Act of 1934 gave AT&T the authority to forbid the sale of these hushaphone attachments. The company claimed that they could lead to a deterioration of phone service, and the first court agreed with them, but it got sent up to an appeals court, and they said, What? No! Attaching a cup to a speaker's not going to deteriorate the entire phone service. That's not how the phone service works. If anything, it will affect one part of the phone service, and that is the person who's using the darn thing. It is This is not an, an issue. They struck it down. And this opened up the door to third-party peripherals that could indirectly connect to the phone company. They could not directly connect into the phone infrastructure, but it gave the opportunity to create something that could work in tandem with it. And it meant that other companies began to look into this. I'll explain how that developed a little bit more in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break.
AT&T's Bell Labs introduced the 103 in the early 1960s, and the 103 modem had a transmission speed of 300 baud. That's 300 bits per second. <sighs> now at that speed, it would take you nearly eight hours to transfer a file that was one megabyte in size. Oof. Now, of course, most files of the time were significantly smaller than one megabyte. Even so, a single character, you know, a letter or a number or a symbol like, you know, a, 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 an enterobang or a dollar sign or anything like that, it would require eight bits to encode. That's one byte. So a 300 baud modem could send about 37 characters per second. Technically, 37 and a half, but half a character is meaningless unless you're, a, you know, a big fan of the Twilight series or something. Meanwhile, a scientist named Robert Weitbrecht was working on a technology to help deaf people communicate using telephone lines. Weitbrecht himself was born deaf, and his innovation used a device called an acoustic coupler. And this was a third-party peripheral that AT&T would have likely shot down before that court decision made from a few years earlier, and that had totally weakened AT&T's case. The acoustic coupler was a special cradle that could hold a telephone handset. Now, you gotta remember, AT&T owned all the telephones, so pretty much all the telephones were the exact same form factor, so it was really easy to build a one-size-fits-all peripheral because you knew what the phones were gonna be like. So the handset would essentially go into two kind of rubber cups and you would put the handset's speaker to go against the coupler's microphone and the handset's microphone would go up against the coupler's speaker. Weitbrecht hooked this up to a teletypewriter. It was an extension of the teletype idea I talked about earlier and here's how it worked. Now both of them have teletypewriter machines with acoustic couplers, so they each put their phone's handset into those acoustic couplers, connecting the whole system together. Person one would type a message on their teletypewriter, and that would then send a signal to the acoustic coupler, which would convert that signal into audio, and the audio would transfer over the phone line, just as it would if they were having a, a voice conversation, to person number two's handset, which is in, you know, another acoustic coupler. The audio plays out over the handset's speaker. The acoustic coupler picks up that audio, converts it into another signal, which goes to the teletypewriter, and then prints the message that person number one had originally typed. What made this invention more useful was the creation of teletypewriter relay services. An entire language was even developed around it because communication could only go one way at a time, similar to using a walkie-talkie or a CB radio. So you have certain phrases that indicate when you are done speaking. You know, like with walkie-talkies, you might say over to indicate you're done. The acoustic coupler would allow for a wider adoption of modems and also allowed other companies besides AT&T the opportunity to make modems themselves. After all, the modems were not directly connecting into the phone networks. Nothing was getting plugged into the phone network itself. They were just sending audio signals over telephones, actual telephone handsets. They just happened to be a carrier signal for digital information as opposed to a voice telephone call. It was a great workaround. Now, if you've seen the classic 1980s film War Games, which stars Matthew Broderick as a precocious hacker, you've seen an acoustic coupler because Broderick uses one. He puts his 
phone into, you know, his phone handset into an acoustic coupler when he hacks into systems in that film. Over the years, companies made more advanced modems, but the customer base was still pretty limited in the 60s and 70s, because we have to remember it wasn't until the mid-1970s that personal computers were even a thing. So typically, so really we were talking about research facilities, a few companies, some government, and some military offices, and mostly they were just talking to branches of themselves. They weren't cross-talking because there wasn't really a network set up yet. Some other important events that helped establish the foundation for modems include the creation of a standard called RS-232. RS stands for Recommended Standard. This was another technology being developed around the same time as the evolution of modems, so early 1960s. It's a standard for serial communication for the transmission of information. And serial communication means that this method sends data one bit at a time, in sequence, as opposed to parallel communication in which you could send data in parallel channels all at the same time. By establishing a standard, companies didn't have to invent a new method for a computer to send data to some other device such as, drumroll please, a modem. By the time personal computers were coming around, the RS-232 standard was well-established, and it was pretty typical to find at least one serial port on a PC. These could connect to things like modems, printers, computer mice, all sorts of stuff. Meanwhile, a group of scientists with the backing of the U.S. Department of Defense were hard at work creating a different set of standards. These standards would set the rules for how computers could send information across a network. You know, how would those messages take form? How would you do error correction? How would you make sure the entire message gets through? These rules would lead to the formation of the ARPANET, a sort of predecessor to the internet, and then further go on to evolve into the rules that guide data transmission across the internet itself. On the telephone infrastructure front here in the United States, the government began to pass regulations on the industry, forcing AT&T to make concessions to consumers. Ultimately, later on, the government would break AT&T up into several regional companies because of that monopoly I talked about earlier. And later, most of these would just coalesce T-1000-like back into AT&T, but that's a different story. One of those regulations, which was passed in the 1960s, had to do with the creation of the RJ11 connector, also known as the phone jack. Earlier phones were typically hardwired into houses with no jack at all. You couldn't disconnect the phone. It was wired directly into the wall. You couldn't plug anything else into the phone line because the other end of the phone line was inside the telephone. There was no access to it. But the RJ11 jack meant you could do that. You could detach the, the wire from a phone and put it into something else, like a modem. Now, it was introduced in the 1960s, but it wasn't until the U.S. government passed regulations requiring their implementation in the mid-1970s. So it took a decade before they were actually starting to really be implemented on a widespread basis. Now, you could build a device like a modem and plug a phone cable directly into the modem itself rather than using an acoustic coupler to do this kind of halfway thing with the, the phone handset plugged into the coupler. This would also allow modem manufacturers to make faster modems with lower error rates. So all of this is happening, and by the time we get 
the early PCs, a lot of these technologies were standardized and starting to mature. And that's a good thing because it meant that we as consumers weren't faced with tough choices that could come back to bite us. Now imagine, if we had to choose between different ways to connect to other computers and other peripherals, it would really limit the types of computers we could select, right? Because whatever computer we select would determine what sort of peripherals we could use and what sort of other machines we could communicate with, We wouldn't have just one internet. We would have dozens of internet, all dependent upon their own proprietary hardware and their own proprietary protocols. It would be awful. It would also be a lot like the early days of online service providers, where it was really typically pretty easy to communicate with other folks who were on that same OSP, but it was a lot harder or sometimes impossible to send messages to someone who was using a different online service provider, which was gross. And yet another thing that was evolving around this time were the various data compression protocols. Compressing data became an important part, not just because of storage space, and it was so precious in those early days. I still remember when I thought 250 megabytes of storage was gonna be more than any person would ever need in their lifetime. It was also important because if you could compress data down so you were working with smaller file sizes, the transfers wouldn't take as long, which I guess is pretty self-evident, but all of these things had to happen to make computer communication practical for the average person. The first consumer modem that you could plug directly into a phone line without the need for a handset was the Hayes Smart Modem which first hit the market sometime in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Until then, you were using acoustic couplers. But then, very few folks in the world had a computer in the first place. Even fewer of those had any need to connect their computer to some other computer, so it wasn't an enormous problem for most people. Other companies would follow Hayes' model and create similar modems, and they would compete with Hayes, and Hayes would just sort of hang on until the early 1990s, and ultimately it would have to file for bankruptcy. But what about that sound I played at the beginning of this episode? What is the sound of a dial-up modem all about? Well, those sounds you hear, those tones you hear, and the noise you hear, they all represent a sequence that modems would go through in order to establish a connection so that communication could actually happen between modems. When you wanted to dial into a service, whether it was a bulletin board service, an online service provider, or later on an internet service provider, here's what generally happens with a dial-up modem. First, you hear the dial tone of the phone, followed by the sound of your modem dialing in whatever phone number you had programmed in for your service. You would then hear the phone ring and then pick up on the other end. You would then hear a cacophony of noises, but those noises established how the modem on your computer could communicate with the modem on the other end of the call. The earliest sounds essentially are the modem saying how fast they can go. I remember when I was a kid, We still had a pretty slow modem at first. I think it was a 2400 baud, so 2400 bits per second. Still not super fast. But this is the process of a modem saying, essentially, this is how fast I can go. This is how much data I can send per second. How about you? The next sequence of sounds established the basic rules of data transfer, including the SYNAC handshake. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K. SYNAC, what is that? Well, SYN actually stands for synchronization. 
And it's all about synchronizing sequence numbers, because even decades after that early work with the teletype, synchronization is still very important. ACK stands for acknowledge. So a SYN-ACK handshake describes a sequence in which one modem initiates synchronization and the other modem says, yeah, I got you. After that comes the actual rate negotiation segment. Earlier, the two modems said, hey, this is how fast I can go. But this is where they say, here's how fast this transaction will go. Here's how quickly we will pass data to and from one another. Then we go to a sound that indicates that a connection has been established, that all the rules have been agreed upon and the two modems are ready to communicate. And then the next sound you will hear is actual throughput, the actual data going to the other machine, and then typically the external speaker on the modem will shut off and you won't hear the noise anymore. But anyone who picks up the phone on your line would hear the noise, and that would also really screw up your modem connection. I hate when that happened. That happened a lot when I was going on bulletin boards back when I was a kid. All of this communication still has to happen within that band of audio frequencies that make up the voice band on the phone infrastructure. Technology is meant to improve phone communication. Stuff like echo cancellation and noise reduction would also end up helping modem technologies. Companies could boost data transfer speeds by making the modulation on that carrier wave more subtle and thus cram more bits per second in transfers. So we saw baud rates go up. You know, it started off at like 1,200 baud, 2,400, 4,800, 9,600, 14.4 kilobits, because a kilo is a thousand, so uh, 28.8 kilobits. And then finally we hit 56K, the gold standard for dial-up internet. The birth of the web drove a demand for modems. And the evolution of content on the web meant that even if you had a 56K dial-up modem, you were not getting data transfer speeds fast enough to really take advantage of what the web was having to offer. That's when we started to see the rise of broadband solutions like DSL and cable modems. But these weren't really modems. At least not like the kind that performed the modulation and demodulation processes of dial-up modems. See, the older modems were necessary because they had to convert that digital signal into an analog signal and then back again. But cable and DSL modems don't do that. They deal in digital. The data never has to transform to another format. So the modems are still necessary in order to facilitate communication, but they're not translating. They're not actually doing modulation, demodulation anymore the way the dial-up modems were. So really, if you want to look at a modern technology that's closer to what dial-up modems are like, you could think of Wi-Fi as being that, because Wi-Fi is all about taking digital information and encoding it into radio waves, broadcasting it out to a receiver, which then accepts those incoming radio waves and converts them back into digital information that the computer can handle. These are closer to what the old dial-up modems used to do. And there is a brief overview of dial-up modems. Some people still use them, not very many. And uh, they were an incredibly important technology for me as a kid. Uh, I'll I'll never forget when I finally converted from dial-up to cable. Never had DSL, but I went to cable modems. And uh, yeah, that was a big, big jump. And uh, one of these days, I hope to have fiber. Hasn't happened yet. My ISP doesn't offer it, and there's no other competing ISP in my neighborhood that offers it, so I'm stuck with cable, but still an improvement over dial-up. 
hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Maybe you have a deeper understanding of how modems work and what their purpose is. I hope so. If you have any sort of suggestions for future episodes, maybe it's a technology or a company or person in tech, maybe it's just a trend you would like me to cover, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook. It's the best way to get in touch with me. And the handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 